Okay, so what book are we on tonight? Index. Index, okay? Alright, no, we are not we are not gonna be in the index. So we have been walking through for a lot of Wednesday nights. We had walked through every single book of the Bible from Genesis all the way through Revelation, looking at who wrote it, when they wrote it, who they wrote it to, some big highlights. So we did all the books of the Bible, and I've told you before that my desire on Wednesday nights is to um, not only be something that we can all participate in, but also something that is informative and helps us grow in our knowledge of Scripture and helps us grow in our depth of Scripture. And so, um, after looking at the books of the Bible, um, we're going to pivot and look at some different characters that we have in the Bible. Um, About over 30 different characters that I want to highlight, characters that probably most of you are familiar with, but maybe think about some things that you may not have thought about before, or some areas that you may think have something new pops into your head. So we are going to be in Genesis 1. So over the next weeks to come, um, I've outlined um, some characters that I want us to just look at, some character studies, if you will. The intent, the end desire is to ask three questions of each one of these characters. The first question is, is who were they? The second question is, is why do we know them? And the third question is, is what lessons do they teach us? Because when it comes to the Word of God, yes, we have the books of the Bible. How many books are in the Bible? 66, right? Okay, so we have 66 books, and they're divided between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And yes, the Word of God is informative, it's instructive in how we're to live, but we also have characters, personalities, people that serve as models and examples to us. So we don't just come to Scripture and read a chapter and verse, but there's also figures in both the Old and the New Testament that you and I can look to and say, hey, there's an example for us how to live our lives, how to be obedient to God, how to follow after God. You think maybe a place like Genesis chapter 12 and God comes to Abram and he tells Abram, I want you to get up, you and your family, and I want you to leave and I want you to travel to a place that I will show you. And in Genesis 12, it says that Abram gathered up. He gathered up him. He gathered up Sarai, his wife. He gathered up Lot, his nephew, and gathered up his belongings. And they took off heading east. No, heading west. They took off heading west. And you can just imagine the family like, where are we going? I'm heading this way. God said he will show me. And he took off. And he just kept going until eventually God said, Alright, this is enough. You can stop here. This is the place that I'm going to give to you and your descendants. And it is now what is modern day Israel. But you can imagine if we talk about what faith looks like, or what does it look, look like to be obedient to God, there's examples that we have in Scripture. So if somebody comes to you and says, well, you know what? We've never done that before. Yeah. Yeah. And that's happened before in the Bible. Or we don't know if this is a good idea or a bad idea. Well, you know, there's principles and precepts and ideas from the Word of God. So that's my desire in looking at some of these character studies is having an idea of the people that have come before us. Not going to be just men, not going to be just women, be both men and women that we can learn from, both good and bad. So in Genesis 1, we get to our first character. I thought it would be appropriate for us to start with the very first person, human person, on the face of the earth by the name of... Adam. Adam. Alright, so Adam was obviously the first person. He was created by God. Now, the question we need to think about, was Adam created by God as a baby or as an adult? As an adult. As an adult. How do we know that? Because the baby couldn't take care of itself. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Alright. 
So we really don't know when, how old in our way of thinking Adam was when he was born, right? We really don't. He was 20? I guess that's the King James. Okay, okay. So I think the King James says he was 20th. 20th. How would the King James put it? Ish. He, 20th. 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 Okay. All right. <laughs> so we know that, we, we assume that Adam was born in maturity, right? He was born in maturity. Now, here's the question. I mean, you probably have heard this before. Did Adam have a belly button? No. <laughs> How do you know? Jesus didn't have one either. Is that the King? That King James is full of all kinds of good information. Man, I'm gonna have to go pull mine off the shelf. I didn't realize that stuff was there in the footnotes. Okay. So, but some people would. There's, so there's there's some controversy about whether Jesus had a belly or whether Adam, not Jesus, whether Adam, whether had Adam had a belly button or not. We assume that he would not because he was not born of woman. But at the same time, when God is creating, God can create whatever He wants to create, right? So God could have created Adam with a belly button. That way, when Adam's three sons, who were... Belly button? Well, they had belly buttons, but what were the three sons of Adam? Cain, Abel, and Seth, right? So you can just imagine when they were growing up, it might have helped if Adam had a belly button. And when his boys, they had their belly button, it might kind of help if, hey, you know, dad and I look similar. I don't know. We don't know if he had a belly button or not. Do you think that Adam got sick? Cold, flu, no. head colds? Not before the apple. Not before the fall? Uh-huh. Not before? Okay. okay. All right. Do you think he had allergies? No. Not before. Not before? So you think that all this stuff came in after the fall? Yes. So that's right. Is that why? And so why do you think that? Because God created perfection. Okay. Well, Adam was made of the dirt, so he already had all that in. <laughs> he already had natural immunity because he was made. So then that logically would say that allergies and sickness come from females. Because everything else came from a woman. No? Yes, no. <laughs> no. I, I'm just trying to follow your train of logic there, Miss Shelley. Okay, so so the, but we can ask we we can ask ourselves a question. You know, sometimes when we think about Adam, when we think about Genesis one, we just we just think about kind of the stuff they cover in Sunday school. And sometimes we forget that Adam was a real life human, had a personality, had the same uh Obviously, the same temptations you and I have, um, same features, characteristics that you and I have. And so sometimes it helps if we think about um, maybe Adam beyond just maybe the Sunday school type answer. So, question is, did he? Does he get sick? Uh, survey says no, he did not. At least until after he was kicked out of the garden. Did he have allergies? Miss Shelley said no. He had natural immunity from the earth. Okay. Belly button, um, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Really wouldn't have any functional utility reason to have a belly button. Except but, the real question is, did God have a belly button because he was formed in the image of God? Oh. Um, he, was, <laughs> he was in the image of God, which is spirit to begin with. He started out as spirit. Yeah. 
I shouldn't have talked about the belly button. Y'all, y'all, are just, y'all are just going off on this whole belly button idea. Y'all, y'all are just y'all are getting off track on this whole belly button. All right, so so kind of take some of the lighthearted stuff aside. We think about who were they. Well, you already said Adam was the first man or the first person created by God. It tells us in Genesis 1 and 27 that he was created first. And it says in Genesis 1 and 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then you get to chapter 2 in Genesis and you see in verse 7, that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils and the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. So we ask ourselves the question is, is, okay, so who was Adam? Well, Adam was created by God. He was created in the image of God. God created him and then created a garden and then placed Adam in the garden to keep the garden. Okay, so he was that first figure. He was that first person that was then given responsibility and given jurisdiction over the garden. What else do we know about Adam? He was lonesome. He was lonesome. That's right. That's right. And that's where you pick it up in verse 18 of chapter 2. And it's the first time God says it is not good. That's right. So all through chapter 1 and chapter 2 gets to the end of creation and God, and God said that is good. That is good. That is good. And then it gets down in verse 18 of chapter 2 and the Lord said it is not good. Like Ms. Denise said, that's the first time we see so far in the creation account where God said something was not Good. In fact, if you look up in chapter 1 and verse 31, it says, And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So as God created things, He said, That is good. That is good. That is good. And then you get down in verse 18 of chapter 2, and God says, That is not good. That man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So then what does God then do in between deciding to make him a helper and creating Eve? What does he do? Yes, but before that, he brings all the animals, right? That's how the the passage lays out. He brings all the animals in front of Adam, and Adam named, this is verse 19, um, Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every, every living creature, that was its name. You may just read past that. You may be like, okay, go on. That fascinates me. That fascinates me that you're sitting on a rock, whatever whatever it was that you're standing. I don't know how how the posture of Adam was, but one by one, animals come by, and there is no frame of reference of what that animal is. It's just the animal goes by, and Adam is sitting there saying, ostrich, buffalo, platypus, (laughs) tarantula. I mean... Item after item after item. I mean, can you imagine the creativity in the mind to come up with that many different names and to have that many uh, different uh, types of animals? Now, I, I can't tell you exactly that it was every single species of every single, was it genus? Is that how they describe the animal, the, the two different classifications of animals? I don't know how many animals was brought in front of him, but just the idea that Adam is sitting there and he's just naming things and naming things and naming things. And then I also find it 
fascinating is that in the Genesis account, if we take it chronologically, there's only two people that knows what Adam named them, and that is God and Adam. Right? So then as Eve comes along and as Cain comes along and as Abel comes along and as Seth and as children and as children, you can imagine all these descendants coming to Adam and saying, Adam, what's that name? And he would remember, he would remember the name. Like, like I think about like going to Oklahoma City Zoo. Take all the placards down. Take all the signage down. And we go through there, and you say, Spence, name it all. And I go through there, Bob, Sue, Johnny, Bill, Ann, whatever. And I go through there, and then you say, now, Spence, I want you to start back over the very beginning and remember all the names that you had given them your first time through. I think that's fascinating to think about the mind of Adam. To think about the intelligence of Adam. To think about the fact that he not only named them, but he knew what they named him. He was able to tell other people what he named him. And now, thousands of years later, you and I are using those same names because Adam, one guy, came with one name. And that's his name forever. I think that's fascinating. You all can be like, oh, who cares? I think it's really cool. I think it's really amazing to think about the mind. And not only think about the fact that he had a different name for every single thing. See, I would have just said cow. And cow would have covered moose, elk, buffalo, longhorn. I mean, cow would have just been one wide grocery bag, okay? It would have just covered a whole lot of things. But no, had different names for different things. So you think about that's what Adam did. And then it goes on there. It gets into verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord had taken from the man, he made it into a woman and brought her to the man. And this, in verse 23 of chapter 2, you see the first marriage that God officiates. And he brings Adam and Eve together. And the two become one. First marriage given in the Bible. The first union that God ordains in matrimony. And so we think about, well, who was Adam? Well, not only was Adam created by God, not only was Adam the first thing that God created in His image, everything up to that point in creation, God did not create it for His image. So Adam was the very first one to be created, the very first human, the very first human to be created in the image of God. He was the very first person to name all the animals. Until that, the animals didn't have names. And then, he was the first one to have surgery. He was the first one to have a rib taken out and made into a woman. He was the first, 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 first. So we think about, well, who were they? There is all kinds of things then baked into who Adam was. But then the question that most people think about, or the, the fact that most people remember, comes down to, why do we know? But why do we know Adam? Why do we know him? Let me, let me, let me, I, I, I see some questions. Look, let me, let me explain to you what I'm getting at here. Okay, so if you get to chapter 5, and it goes to this, the, the genealogy. So it talks about Adam's descendants all the way down through, to, through Noah, right? So it just checks them off. This person lived, 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 blah, 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 blah. Okay? You let your eyes um, flow down there to chapter 5 and verse 12. And it says, When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahi-Mahi, and Kenan lived after Mahi-Mahi 840 years. Now, how many times have you heard a Sunday school lesson over Kenan? How many times have you heard somebody preach a Father's Day message over Kenan? you think there's a reason why we don't talk about him, but we talk about Adam? 
because we can't pronounce the names. That's 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 probably that's probably a good point. That's that's a good valid point. But but why do we talk about Adam? Because of the fall. Because of the fall. That's right. But also because he was the first. Absolutely. I mean, it's just like your children. When that first one comes along, you're like, hey, look what we got. By the third one, you're kind of like, hey. We did better. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the big reasons why we know about Adam, why we talk about Adam, is because not just because of his first, like you said, Denise, but also because of his failures. You know, it's... So common that we remember people not for their successes or for their good qualities, but how easy that we know people because of their bad qualities or their failures. I mean, there's a lot of people in my generation that if you said Richard Nixon, if they knew who Richard Nixon was, they would not be able to list off the qualities of Mr. Richard Nixon. They could just list off his failures. And the things that he is known for negatively. Same way with Adam. When it comes to Adam, we know who he was. But then we ask the question, well, why do we know him? Well, we know him, like Denise said, because he's first. But we also know him because through Adam and through Eve came sin. And according to you all, came head colds and flus and strep throat and hay fevers and gluten allergies and what? Poison ivy. Poison ivy. Yeah. What? And wild sumac, right? Bee stings and all that. Well, you know, all that stuff came in through that. So we know Adam primarily, not only being the first, but we also know Adam because of what he did and what he didn't do. So, who ate of the fruit first? Yes, sir. So, did that... Was there a second creation after the fall? Or was it just the nature of the beast changed after the fall? So there's always been ticks, but they didn't land on you and suck blood before the fall. But after the fall, they bit into you. Well, I can't point to a chapter verse that says that there wasn't colds before the fall. Part of me wants to say that within the garden... There was perfection inside the garden. And then one, once God cast them out of the garden, then that showed a separation. And I don't know if head colds were waiting outside the garden. Um, but I can't show you a chapter verse. I, I think we can speculate. And I'm not saying that your speculation is wrong or my speculation is wrong. Um, but I do think that obviously we know the curse then infected. Sin infected the earth. Sin infected humanity, and there are now consequences that come from that. But I don't know of a chapter and verse that would say, like you're asking about the ticks. Um, I, I don't know of one. We assume, like we assume that Adam didn't have a belly button. Um, but at the same time, we realize that a lot of these things, whether they were there or whether they weren't there, we know that they are there today. They are here today because of sin and because of the brokenness that's in the world. Right? So, it comes to the garden. And who does the snake tempt? Eve. Where was Adam? He was where? He was where? Tending. Tending. <laughs> All right. 
so, so I mean, that's a serious question. So, so like, where was it? So the, you know the narrative. This is Genesis chapter 3, okay? So he said, uh, uh, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman. So that sets up the scenario. Now the snake, that's why snakes are evil. Now the snake, he's talking to the woman. And there's this dialogue that is going on. But where's the, the question that I have is, where is Adam? That's right. That's right. He says that he was with her. So it says there in uh, verse 6, the last part of verse 6, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now that gives us the imagery, the idea that while the snake is sitting there talking to Eve, Adam's right here. Now, I don't try to read more into it than what's there, but I'm just saying if you, if you just read it and you think about it plainly, so the snake's talking to Eve, Adam's sitting there, and he's not doing anything. He turned his ears off. Mm, that happens. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so there is some, there's some opportunities there for women to make all kinds of funny jokes because, because Adam, Adam was sitting there and he didn't do anything. And then after the fall, who does God come looking for? He comes for Adam. And what does he do? He says, uh, let's see there in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? There's this whole then scenario that comes in. So when we think about Adam, yes, Adam was the first, but also Adam was the one that was right there with Eve. When Eve took a bite of the fruit, Adam knew. Who did God tell not to eat the fruit? Huh? Did He tell both of them? Who did He tell not to eat the fruit? Adam. He told Adam not to eat the fruit. Uh, let me... Verse 16 of chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the picture we see is, yes, Adam was created first, but then God told Adam, don't do it. And then when the time came, Adam was abdicating, or he was apathetic, or he was just standing there watching. God had told Adam, don't do it. So then when you get there into chapter 3, and God comes looking for Adam, the reason is because he had told Adam, hey, don't do it. So there are some some things that we can be reminded of that comes into who they were, and why do we know them? Let me move into maybe some lessons. What are some lessons that Adam teaches us? What are some lessons that we can learn from the life of Adam? Let me just give you several here. First lesson that I see is that you cannot be too close to God. You cannot be too close to God. Adam was one of the few people in creation that communicated directly with God. Right? There was this communication, and we don't know how it happened. Obviously, there was some communication that took place. He knew that God was speaking. God knew that He was speaking because there's a dialogue that goes on there in chapter 3 when Adam when Adam comes back out and says to God, we hid because we are naked, and God says back to him, who told you that you are naked? So there's some direct communication going on, going on there. But then also throughout Scripture, we see where that direct communication, there was a separation there because of sin. 
And you would think, well, how in the world, Adam, could you have sinned against God if you had that direct communication with God? And we get the idea in chapter 3 that God would come and walk in the cool of the garden with man. And He would come and walk in the cool of the garden with Adam. And He would communicate and He would commune and He would fellowship with Adam. And so Adam had that kind of relationship. He had that kind of communication with God. And yet, in the end, he still sinned against God. Now, why do I think that's a lesson for us? Well, I think sometimes you and I, well, I shouldn't say you and I, sometimes I, sometimes I can be tempted to think, well, you know what? I am close enough to God. Or I am good enough. Or I know enough. Or I am mature enough. Or I have set enough boundaries up. Or I make all these things to say, that is sufficient. That is what I need to do. And the reminder is, and the lesson is, is that I I can never be too close to God. Because you got Adam, and he's in the garden, and he's sinless. He has everything He needs, you could go back and listen to the account that God had provided every type of food that He needed, every kind of covering that He needed, every kind of environment that He needed. There was a mist that kind of covered it. It didn't rain. It didn't storm. He didn't get sick. He, He was completely taken care of and provided for. And I, I even lean towards the idea that without the fall, Adam wouldn't have ever died. And there was only one sin into the world that then death entered into the world. But there he lives. And we don't know exactly how old Adam was when the fall occurred. Um, Really don't know of an idea to say, well, he was X number of years old. But we do know from the account that we're given in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and 4 that it was Adam and Eve. They were in the garden. And then that's when they sinned against God. God cast them out of the garden. And then it says that he... um, Well, I had it written down here. He knew his wife. They had Cain. And then they had... Abel, and then Abel and Cain had a tissy. Cain killed his brother Abel, and then I had saw it somewhere, and I'd written, I thought I made a note, and I didn't, but I thought I saw somewhere where then Adam was 120 years old when he had his third son, Seth. Maybe I'm, maybe I, maybe I'm. 5'3. Yeah, 5'3. Thank you. 5'3. Okay, so yes. Okay, so. Tells us, so now Adam, Adam is, you know, he's 120 years old or 130. I'm sorry, yeah. So he had lived 130 years old when he had Seth, okay? And then how long did Adam live total? 912. 930, according to chapter 5 and verse 5. So now I don't know exactly how old he was whenever he had Cain. But if I think, just in my wide, I don't have a chapter and verse, but let's say he and Eve had Cain. Cain grew up to be somewhat of an adulthood. That's when him and Abel had um, their spat, and that's when Cain killed Abel. And then after that, if I understand it correctly, after that is when Seth was born. So let's just hypothetically think Adam's in his 70s or his 80s when he has Cain. So he lived for 50 years in the garden. Ish. 50 years in the garden. And then he spends the next 850 years out of the garden. Because of one sin, 
because one temptation. So, first lesson I want you to think about is that you cannot be too close to God. There is never a time that you can know too much. There is never a time that you can pray too much. There is never a time that you can um, be too spiritual. There is never a time that you can be too faithful. There is never a time that you can be too obedient. There is never a time that you can give too much to God. There is never a time that you can be um, too in love with God. There is never a time that you can worship God too much. We can never be close to God. Second lesson that I see from the life of Adam is that we are never immune. We're never immune. We think that we can go out and we can get medicine. And this medicine gives us immunity against whatever we are concerned about. There is not any kind of medicine that makes us immune to sin. And from what I understand, and I could be wrong, from what I understand, at least for the guys... Temptation doesn't go away at a certain age. It might change. It might differ. It might be a different temptation at this stage of life than it was at that stage of life. But from what I understand, at least from a man's perspective, is the temptation never never goes away. It just changes what the temptation is. And sometimes you and I may find ourselves in lives where we start to think, well, you know, I have gotten past that. I am stronger than that. I am beyond that. And we are never immune to sin. Sometimes we start to think, well, I'm better than that person. I don't have that problem. And I'm not going through this over here. And I'm not dealing with that over there. I don't have any issues. And yet Adam, Adam is sitting there in the garden. There had not been any sin up until this point. There was no risque marketing that he was seeing on his social media feeds. There wasn't any kind of billboards, questionable billboards that he drove past on his way to and from work. He wasn't going to the beach and watching all of the, uh, the, the young ladies that didn't know how to cover all the stuff up they should cover up. He wasn't going to that. He was sitting there in the garden, the most sterile place you can think of. And yet even in the garden, where the only two people alive was him and Eve, no temptation, no stresses that you and I may think would be normal, and yet even in the garden, as as isolated as he could be, he was not immune to sin. Sometimes we think that these young people, they go to camp. And we think, oh, when they go to camp, they ought to be on their best behavior. And oh, when they go to camp, oh, they're going to get some Jesus. And oh, when they go to camp, all these things will take place. When they go to camp, they are still the same person at camp that they were the week before they went to camp. And you know, they're, they're, and, it, and it was rightly so for a little period of time there, um, several decades ago, um, Falls Creek got a bad reputation. Got a reputation for not having a very good, um, very good handle on some of the immorality that was taking place down there. And that was well-founded and it was well-deserved. But at the same time, you take 5,000 kids and you put them in a little 160-acre plot, kids are going to act like... The kids are going to act there the way they did back home. So why should we be surprised that they do that kind of stuff? Well, and the same thing happens up. We come to church and we think that kids won't act at church like they do at home. Why would we expect that? Why would we expect lost people not to act like lost people? 
people are going to act the way they are. And so Adam is there in the garden, and you and I may may start to think, oh, well, at church, we wouldn't be tempted that way. Oh, at church, that wouldn't happen. We are never immune from the temptation of sin. The third, the third lesson that Adam gives us is that our actions have consequences. That's something that is lost today in our society. Now the idea is that you don't have, there doesn't have to be consequences for your actions. You didn't deserve it. You didn't mean to. It's not your fault. It's someone else's fault. All of these things about privilege and all of these things about social justice and all these things about wokeness and all these godless ideologies that are running around there that you are never at fault for what you do. And yet we see right here in the garden that when Adam sinned against God, there were consequences for his sin. And that is still true about me and that is still true about you. There are consequences for our actions. You all read that horrific story or seen that horrific story out there in Henrietta? The man kills six people and then kills himself. And you think, how tragic and how horrific. Those actions will have consequences. All of our actions have consequences. Adam is a great example that sometimes we may not know what those consequences may be, but once we commit the actions, we have now forfeited being able to dictate the consequences. I have these sweet, sinful children living in my home, and they will sit there and they will disobey, or they will fight, or they will do something they know that's not allowed, and then the time comes for punishment, and they want to tell me how they should be punished. Now, if you're a parent for very long, can you imagine that child that just tore something up, broke something, did something, lied about something, and that child looks at you and goes, well, this is what my punishment should be, and this is what I expect, and they start dictating to you how the punishment looks like. Well, we say that's that's ridiculous. Who in the world would ever do that? And yet we do that with God, don't we? Oh God, I know I've done X, Y, Z, but God, this is the punishment that I should have. And God, if you give me any more consequences than that, you're a big meanie. <laughs> like that policeman that stops somebody, not in this room, I'm sure, but stops somebody, and they're speeding, and they say, you're speeding, and we will issue you a citation. <laughs> They tell you in driver's ed. <laughs> you break the law, you are subject to a citation. This is not this is not super secretive stuff. Actions have consequences. So you think back to Adam and you think any of the consequences that we might receive in this room from our actions do not even come close to the consequences that God gave Adam. Praise the Lord. Every sin of mine doesn't cause me to move. Every sin of mine doesn't cause me to be kicked out. Every sin of mine doesn't have these same consequences. And here's the last one I want you to think about. These consequences can be generational. If you go over there to chapter 5, it talks about Adam's descendants down to Noah. And you see where because of Adam's sin, and then Cain and Abel, Cain's sin against Abel, and then you start seeing this sin enter in the world, and then you get just down to Genesis chapter 6, and what is the plight of the world in Genesis chapter 6? Anybody know? The flood? But why did God bring the flood? Because the whole, the whole 
society, the entire population, apart from Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives, the entire population was evil and corrupt. And so God said, I'm going to wipe out everybody except for you eight because everybody is corrupt. And where did that start with? It started with Adam and Eve. It started with them. I think sometimes we forget that our consequences can be generational. I heard one person say one time, what you and I will do in moderation, our children will do in excess. Jason, where are you going? Bathroom. Okay. You coming back? Yeah. Okay. So it's the idea that sometimes when you and I think we'll just we'll just do it a little bit, and it's not that big of a deal, we forget that our children will magnify. And our children will do it on a greater, more expanded level. And so you see these consequences that can be generational. And then you and I can sit here tonight in 2023 and you and I can think back to the different generations that have come before us and how a little sin led to a bigger sin, led to a bigger sin, and led to a bigger sin. You think back to the 1960s and maybe the early 1970s where sex was idolized and the body was idolized and now we fast forward 40 years and now what do people see as the crown jewel is they see their own bodies and they see their own sexualities. And what started off in the 1960s and saw that oh well, that's just a hippie movement and that's just a, a select group of people now has become mainstream and now everybody thinks that is what is the norm. Incremental but generational. It started off small and they, grad, they gradually gain a movement and momentum. So these consequences can be generational. So why do I bring that up for us tonight? Well, because sometimes we forget that our sins really do matter. And my sin matters for more than just me. And my sin matters for more than just me this week. That my sin can have an impact on my children. And that sin could then impact my grandchildren. And then that sin could then impact my great-grandchildren. And so my actions today, while they might have consequences to me personally, my actions today can still have impact and consequences to generations yet to come. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we just blow right past that. And then you come to Genesis chapter 5 and we see Adam... And the generations that came after him, they were all affected by the actions of Adam. So, who was Adam? First guy, first man, all these first that he did, the first one to get married, first husband that Eve had ever had, first guy that Eve had ever seen. Why do we know him? We know him not only because of his success, but also we know him because of his failures. And what lessons can he teach us? He can teach us about our relationship to God and teach us about the impact and the consequences of our sin before God. So I hope that we will think about some of these examples that we have. And you may say, well, that's not a positive example, Spence. We think about the consequences of sin. No, but it's also a good reminder about how my little things can then be magnified in my children. And I need to be careful about the life I live because I am impacting and I am influencing those that are going to come after me. I'm sure you've heard that story before about that woman that 
pulls out the turkey for Thanksgiving and she chops a third of the turkey off at the end and sets it in the pan. The daughter looks at her and goes, well, Mom, why do you do that? She said, well, that's what my mother did and that's what we always do. And then they start asking, well, why do they do that? And they go back to the grandmother who says, well, I don't know that. My mother did that. They go back to the great-grandmother. The great-grandmother says, well, the reason I did that is because that's the only size of the pan that I had. <laughs> you heard that one before? So the reason it started was because that was the size of the pan. But then the daughter and the granddaughter and the great-granddaughter assumed that because the way she did it, that meant that it always had to be that way. It's the same way with us. I mean, can you imagine if our kids grew up and they saw an example, a godly example at home, and that's the only thing they ever saw? Oh, praise the Lord, if they could just see the fear of God in us. Questions, thoughts, pushbacks?